I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, everyone. You're listening to the Third Coast podcast. I'm Dennis Funk. You know, at Third Coast, we love to bring radio fans together to listen in public, and we're very excited to announce our next live event, here in Chicago. On Thursday, August 21st, we'll be joined by Nate DeMeo, creator of The Memory Palace, a podcast of short, surprising stories from history. Nate will share some of his favourite bits of audio, his inspirations, and give us a glimpse into his other life as a TV writer for programmes like Parks and Recreation. So, join us on August 21st at the Logan Theatre in Logan Square. To buy tickets or for more details, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org and click on the calendar. All right, that's it from me. Now, here's this week's podcast. Ray, people will come, Ray. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up your driveway not knowing for sure why they're doing it. Great radio is everywhere, but you can't be, which is why we collect, curate, and bring you the best audio stories available worldwide. We search high and low on the internet, the airwaves, podcasts. We hear it, we build it, and we hope you will come. Each week on ReSound. Oh, people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. When people are obsessed with a single notion or idea, and I'm talking about super-driven, won't-take-no-for-an-answer, against-all-odds kinds of tilting at windmills, well, these people are often labeled as kind of crazy. They may be tolerated and humored, but they're not often embraced with open arms and open purses. Until, that is, something happens. And that wild-eyed sculptor who wants to carve up a mountain has created Mount Rushmore. The two guys in the garage? Apple. When their ideas catch on and people start lining up behind them, then these crazy people become visionaries. Who decided, if I build it, they will come? So, they built it. Today on ReSound, we'll see if they came. Stay with us. Great 
Clyde Casey was a street performer in the parking lot of the experimental Wallen Boyd Theater near L.A.'s Skid Row. So this was the mid-80s, and wild performance art, fringe festivals, and avant-garde work was de rigueur. Clyde was such a positive street presence that the folks at the Wallen Boyd asked him to keep watch over the theater. This job inspired Clyde Casey to build his own space for the community. It was just across the street, but he called it Another Planet. And boy, was it. One night, they had some kind of production going on, and the security guard didn't show up. They needed somebody out there to keep an eye on things and watch over um, the cars coming in. And and these cars were coming in from the outskirts of L.A. I said, "Uh, sure, but can I perform while I'm doing that? He said, oh, you can do anything you want. Just keep an eye on everything out there. I said, sure, not a problem. Sometimes there would be someone in the area who would try to bring in a little bit of negative into the area, some kind of a confrontation or really being ugly with people. And all of a sudden it's like I was going to have to deal with it. The theater had closed for the evening. It was around 1 o'clock in the morning and everything was real quiet. I witnessed this. Casey's just doing his job, you know. There were these two guys. They were coming from opposite directions, and one guy was really wasted on wine, you know. I mean, he was really drunk. And the other guy was kind of, I don't know what it was, crystal meth or uh, cocaine, I don't know what it was, but he was really hyper, you know, and he was jumping around, and the guy who was drunk kind of stumbles over to him and reaches out his hand. This guy came up to me and asked me for a dollar. The other guy, he reaches in his pocket, pulls out a knife, trying to attack him. And then that's when I would just, like, back out of a situation and I'd do something different. Do something different. Do something different. Do something different. Casey, he had a military uniform. He had boots, uh, military boots, a beret, and he had sort of a military belt and holsters and where a policeman would have a gun or a nightstick or or something on one side he had horn like those bicycle horns that you squeeze and goes whack on the other side he had a phone this was before cell phones really so it was a portable phone it didn't work really just if you punched it it would ring First he hit the horn, you know. These two guys, these two guys look up, you know. They both kind of, you know, what is this? And then the phone rings. Uh, I have a telephone call coming in. Maybe I should answer it. Pull the antenna out. Casey answers it. Hello. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh huh. Yeah. It's for you, man. Oh, it's uh, it's long distance. It's for you. I'd say it's for you. It's collect. Collect. Do do what? You what? He does the phone to the guy now who has the knife call. out. Really, it was a long-distance collect call from the planet Yuma, home of the Yumites. You might not. The guy just looks at him like, oh, what? And you walk towards him with antennas coming out of the glasses. You honk the horn. You buzz the buzzer. He looked down at the ground. He looked at himself. He looked at the guy, the drunk guy, and he just started laughing. More than anything, to dissuade the negative from the area was my harmonica. And the guy's saying, no, 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 no
no, no, no. You know, the, get away from me, man. Get away from me. You know. You know, and these two guys looked at each other. The drunk guy says, "So, hey, man, can you spare me a quarter?" You know? And the other guy just shook his head and kind of went off down the street. You know. And if anybody was getting in the face of somebody or giving me a hard time, I, you know, I just play sounds, different sound effects. The sound effects I carry with me now are a little bit different. You know, this right here. And just being abstract and surreal really worked. I figure, well, so this was an avant-garde theater, so I guess that makes me. Tan tan tan, the avant-garde-ian. And as the avant-garde-ian evolved, I went over into the Korean wholesale district and started getting a lot of little goofy little things like、uh, a spring-loaded Nerf gun, a fly shooter, a little accordion. And so when people would pull up to the theater, I started、uh, saying, "You're well protected now." Tan tan tan, the avant-garde-ian. Trained by Barney Fife, he used humor as a weapon in a way. It's things that either provoke a laughter or provoke a curiosity. But the bottom line is that it does alter the mood for that brief moment in time, and that's all life is—made up of moments. You know. I was able to, in a very real situation, use the power of surrealism to make a person turn around their way of thinking. It worked. It worked numerous times. Oh, I don't know. No, but I got. I got what I think I got. Yeah, there you go. Because the wholesale district, I'd wind up getting harmonicas for、uh, such a cheap price. I'd always have them with me, and you know, you're always getting approached for change and stuff. So I would give them a harmonica, and then I'd have change inside of the harmonica, and I'd have a little note. I felt better from the heart. I always believe you give an energy to receive an energy. You know, whatever you put out will come back to you. You know, he's just going to use it to get high. Yeah, he'll put some weed on one of the holes, you know, and light it up. Probably be able to suck in on a G note. <laughs> One day, Casey was standing in front of the Wallen Boyd Theater and looked across the street at the abandoned gas station. It had gone out of business long ago. It was on a corner lot, just a little building with an awning, decaying in a grim neighborhood. Standing there, staring at this gas station, Casey had a vision. It just looked separate from everything else that was around here. It was a corner spot. It was all. They're just separate. And when I looked at that property and the structure that was on it, I was seeing that this would be another planet. There is a sixth dimension, sixth dimension, beyond that which is known to man. 
It was almost like a, a mind creation. It is an area as vast as space. In other words, it was a it was a, a thought brought to life in, in physical reality. And as timeless as infinity. It was an amazing place, and as it it is a middle ground progressed, it was almost as if between light and shadow. Somebody drew a circle around this place. It lies between a pit of man's fears. Uh, the service station. In the sunlight of his knowledge. Not somebody, but something. It's almost it's very difficult to. It is a dimension of imagination to describe it, but within the circle, it is an area that might be known of this place. The rules were just completely different. As another planet. Yeah, could you sort of describe for someone who had never seen it, like what was it like to go there? What did it look like? Well, it was like a triangular lot, a little gas station, an old gas station, old gas station, no gas things, you know, but the building. And he decorated it, and there were things on the roof and sculptures. and The whole environment was very real, but it was very surreal. Oh, my God, he had so much stuff. He had mannequins up on the roof. All kinds of mannequins and womankins. They have a presence. People would give him stuff and he'd set it up. I'm a huge collector of cosmic debris. Whatever he could have access to or ask for or somebody give him, he'd make art out of it. Sculptures and very abstract art. It, it was just flotsam and jetsam and a lot of people around. He had seats. He had like a stage and people doing rap, telling stories and stuff like that. Somebody gave him a piano. There was always people playing the piano and singing around it. And some of those musicians were really good, some of those guys. He had a TV set. And I faced it towards the street. Um, which he could show films. He showed movies, old movies. And I was donated a film called Coin Scotsy. And it's a Godfrey Reggio film. It's still my favorite film of all time. No actors, no words spoken. Uh, Philip Glass does the sound score. Ron Fricky did the film footage. And I showed it every sunset. Koyanaskatsi means life out of balance. And in the downtown area, that's exactly what was going on. It was pretty much a life out of balance. Another planet was an environment that was kind of bringing a little bit of a balance to the area. It was another planet. I think he might even come from another planet. He might... Clyde, Clyde, Clyde Casey. I do believe he lived there somewhere up, up on top. He slept on the roof. Yeah, he did. So people from the surrounding area started coming by. It was meant for everybody, but it turns out that the homeless latched onto it in a very quick way. And I pretty much let it be known that, you know, make yourself at home. You can't camp out here, but it's open 48 hours a day, days a week. Welcome visitors, small planets, and no shirt, no shoes, no problem. Just come in, make yourself at home, and, and I served coffee for a dime on a silver platter. Kind of like a little bit of that southern hospitality, because originally I'm from Memphis. And I was just transplanting it into the gritty industrial downtown uh, environment. So you're walking down the sidewalk, and hey, there's things to do. I had a big ping pong table. And oh, and he had chess games, chess sets up. Chess is the closest game to life. 
whether I win or lose is not the point. I just love it. But another planet just was there. It was just that corner, which had life. Downtown didn't have a lot of life at that time. And another planet wasn't meant specifically for the homeless. It was meant for the neighborhood. You know, there was always something going on, something to do. It just so happens that neighborhood was mainly the homeless. With uh, planet, it was like going home. Maybe not at your own home, but at your neighbor's house. You know what I'm saying? Anybody can go sit in the mission. But sitting in the mission was like going to your pastor's house to a degree. For most people, missions are a place of last resort. You know, in the mission, you had to conform and stand in line, have proper attire, not be under the influence in any way, and have to deal with people who are basically hostile. Okay, so you've got conditions that you have to mentally prepare yourself for before you even get there. And that can be difficult, especially if a person has any form of mental problems. And the majority of the people in this area, myself included, should have been on some form of medication, and they weren't. As the planet, there was no actual hostilities, okay? And you knew that before you went there. So you could go there as you were and be accepted and welcome, okay? Hundreds and hundreds of people would be there every night. It was an oasis for homeless people and, and for a lot of people. For me, it was. I mean, I was not homeless, but as it attracted more and more attention, it became problematic. The local businesses were getting more and more upset, and they were putting pressure on the city. And on one hand, Casey received a commendation from the mayor of L.A., you know, on the other hand, there were these constant barrage of complaints about what are these, you know, let's get this thing out of here, you know. In May of 1989, I thought I'd go surprise my mother for Mother's Day, and she's in Memphis. I didn't have the money to go there, and I thought, well, I'd just hitchhike. The quickest way to hitchhike is juggling, so especially with pins, bright orange pins. People can, you can be seen. They look like you're a, a clown who's escaped from a circus, and so they, they'll pick you up to take you back to the circus, you know. I had to leave the, another planet in the hands of someone. There was this woman who, um, she was somewhat of a missionary, and she'd been helping a lot of the homeless on the street and actually living in her own little cardboard box. And she was a real good help. And so I left it in her hands. But she didn't like all of the things that I had on the top of another planet, the mannequins and sculptures. And, <clears throat> and um, when I came back, all that stuff was gone. 
her whole thing was getting uh, jobs and pretty much taking care of the business issue of people's lives more than the personal emotional effect of people's lives and that's what another planet was about it had to do with uh, having a respite away from all of the chaos the koinoskatsi that was going on all around the whole out of balance you know and another planet was there to bring balance she just stripped the visual magnet just the art form and the form and design that that I created there was just destroyed it uh it was like somebody just ripped my soul away from me you know it's not like it was all for me i mean i fixed it up for everyone to appreciate and everybody did <laughs> except her <laughs> what did you say to her when you when you saw that I said you destroyed a good thing. I was invited to house it in artist uh, studio, her studio and her turtles. She had these big turtles. I got a call like midnight, one o'clock in the morning. I can't remember what time it was. Said that the place was on fire. Los Angeles Times, August 10th, 1989. Another planet, an abandoned Skid Row gas station that had been converted to a shelter and cultural center for the homeless, was destroyed early Wednesday by a fire that eyewitnesses said was set by a transient who appeared to be mentally deranged. Whoo, man, that just threw me for a loop. I got on my bicycle and pedaled over there. Fire officials said they were investigating reports that the fire was set on purpose. Nobody got hurt, but um, people's possessions were destroyed, and so were mine. At least 78 boxes containing property of homeless people went up in flames. Another planet's creator, Clyde Casey, sobbed as he surveyed the ruins Wednesday morning. The facility carried no insurance, Casey said. He was not optimistic that he would soon find another site, but promised that another planet will rise from the ashes. You know, things happen. Things happen when you believe in something and you believe in it strong enough to where you know that it's necessary. It's necessary to have a 48-hour day, day a week environment and for it to have the feeling of what a person would expect on another planet. You would really want it to be, in many ways, representative of the best of what the third planet from the sun offers. People who are, you know, out on the street and living in dumpsters and hiding away from the enemy of the night, to have a place that was like a little oasis, you know, a little little island of tranquility, was you know, was uh, cloud nine, you know? And um, you just don't find that in any city, anywhere. You've got to pay for your seat. You've got to, you've got to um, contribute something to be there. Mm-hmm. 
cartoon has to do with leaving the world as we know it and going into the, uh, an invisible world. Every planet in the universe is orbiting and doing what it does. But unless you make preparations for you get there, you're going to be unwelcome. There's also a hostile side to the universe. You follow? Okay. Well, like they just found water on Mars. For years and years, they believed that there was no actual water. And what I'm saying is, if I was planning a trip to Mars, I would have to prepare myself to go there and survive. And if we're not prepared, then we're on a hostile planet. Okay. All I really want to do is, uh, right now, is to get another planet uh, revolving again. And whenever I do get another planet going again, I want the headquarters to be in uh, Roswell. I want to do it in Los Angeles and Skid Row, and I want to do it in New Orleans. Set up a geodesic dome for two or three or four or five or six. That was an excerpt from Another Planet, produced by David Weinberg, Brendan Baker, and Nick Vanderkoek. This episode is a co-production of Love and Radio, the organist podcast from Believer Magazine and KCRW. Clyde Casey now lives in New Orleans, where he entertains tourists with Rube Goldberg-esque mobile musical sculptures. You have got to check them out. To see them or to listen to this story in its entirety, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up after the break, ruins that are not at all ancient and a 15,000-square-foot, 40-room, 8-story mansion. Did I mention that it's in a tree? Stay with us. You're listening to Resound. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
Sound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we're listening to stories that fall under the category, If You Build It, They Will Come. Like Clyde Casey in Los Angeles, Horace Burgess of Crossville, Tennessee, had a vision, a vision of God. In this vision, God told Horace to build him a treehouse, and build he did. In fact, he built the world's largest treehouse with 40 rooms that span seven trees and eight stories. It's over 15,000 square feet, and it took him 11 years to build. But when all was said and done, the people came, and came, and came, and came. Here is the treehouse. You know, I always said, if I ever could get even, I could amount to something, and I got even one time, and and, uh, I did. You know, I did something with my life. My name is Horace Burgess. I have built the largest treehouse on earth. I don't know if I'll ever be known for anything else. (laughs) It's kind of overshadowed everything else I did in my life. See how huge that tree is. I, I made little places like this where kids could play in the in the bracing of it, you know, and everything. And they're not very secret now, but at one time <laughs> you had to know what to pull to get this door to come open. I tell everybody that I've done everything from a cowboy to a male stripper in Houston. You know, I did it all. Now I'm a minister of Jesus. I grew up in church. I mean, my mom and dad made me go to church. They preached, if you're good, you're good. If you're bad, you're going straight to hell, you know. And I was always bad. It always seemed like I couldn't do the right thing. So it just—it was just like, there's no sense in me even dealing with this thing called religion because I can't. When I became 18 and went into the Army, which I went through Vietnam and things like that, and I was running crazy in my 30s. Partying, and that wasn't healthy either. You'd probably die nowadays. (laughs) I was working on uh, skyscrapers in Houston, and this guy said, man, you you know, you got the look. You You could dance down at the club here and make all kinds of money, which it wasn't me. I was an old country boy, but I made like $475 one song. So I started dancing. <laughs> and uh, I spilled some drinks one night. It was like the worst thing could happen to a waiter, you know. They was going to make me pay for them, and I said, my career is over. I'm out of here. I come back to Tennessee. There's some college girls painted this mural and that one in there. You can just see evidence of everyone that's come. I just withdrew from society, really, and I built me a little cabin and uh, lived off of uh, stale brownies and uh, orange crush that had fell off the truck. I had a beard, you know, and my hair was down my back and uh, took my little friend to uh, get him a pint of liquor and uh, my friends introduced me to a real pretty blonde. One Friday night, we were in this restaurant, and my girlfriend knocked on the bathroom door, 
and said, Julia, I got out here. There's someone I want you to meet. And so as I was coming out of the bathroom, there was this very disheveled, long-haired, long-bearded gentleman with no shirt on in the middle of January. And he looked at me up and down and said, well, you look just about right. And I just walked off. I thought, how dare you talk to me like that? She just mad as <laughs> walked off. Like, you nasty old man. And um, I went out, and I told my, my friend, I said, I'm going home, I'm going to clean up, shave, and I'm going to get me a date with that blonde that I was just introduced to. A couple of weeks later, we went to this place that I swore I would never go into, and I walked in, and I looked over to my left, and there was this very attractive man dancing with this lady on the dance floor. And so I asked my girlfriend, who was the guy dancing with that lady? And she said, well, that's Horace Burgess. And I said, that's Horace Burgess? <laughs> he, had, he had done this metamorphosis since the last time I'd seen him. So um, shortly after, thereafter, we, were, we got married. I built this penthouse for my wife. And it's got a king-size sleeping loft up here. This was going to be the kitchen and dining room. At the time, neither one of us were living what you would call a Christian life. I gave him a 40th birthday party, and um, so many things came to a head that night. I mean, it was two different classes of people coming together, and they did not get along at all. At that time, the state of Tennessee had just passed a law that if it was an uncontested divorce, you could get it within 24 hours, and um, we divorced. I mean, we stayed apart maybe three weeks, and it was the most horrific three weeks of my life. Uh, but when we got back together, we both knew that the love that we had for one another was the, the most beautiful thing that we had. So when we remarried, we just knew that we had to make Jesus Christ the foundation of our marriage, and we did. That year, my husband read the whole Bible, and then he started playing Jesus in place. A lot of people would come into this church and see my husband and uh, couldn't believe it was the same person. <laughs> my wife, when, when I started building it, she was uh, afraid of heights. You're about 40 feet up right here, and you can still see how huge that tree is. It's the only live tree in it. The other six, they died when I put the roof over it. I was sitting up there at the top of the steps one Sunday praying. About 24 pair of bluebirds came and sit in that tree with me. I mean, it was just the most peaceful time. And the Spirit of God said, if you'll build me a tree house, I'll never let you run out of material. And I agreed to. Two weeks later, I was laying on my bed and uh, the whole ceiling of my bedroom became that treehouse. It wasn't a picture of it, it was the treehouse. I, I was inside it, saw the art on the wall, the elevator, the heating system, everything. He woke me up and he just said, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to build God a treehouse. And I'm thinking, sure, you know, what would it take for him to do that? Maybe six months, maybe a year. I thought it was a wonderful idea. I started working on the treehouse just diligently. It was in 93, and I was 43. A lot of times, 
I would stand and just pray. And just in my mind's eye, all this would just fall into place. My name is Gary Nelson, and I'm a senior staff writer at the Crossville Chronicle in Crossville, Tennessee. Nobody back then really thought much of it. It wasn't famous like it is now, um, but a lot of the kids knew about it, and uh, they would go visit the treehouse partying and stuff. I was working a full-time job and, and doing the treehouse and trying to be a husband, too, and that didn't work out real good. You know, my wife kind of felt like Noah's wife for about 11 years. I just think about that time as barely hanging by a thread. It's, it's kind of a blur. I went and visited my friends a lot out of town, and I, I felt like I had I'd lost him, you know, because it, he was so driven. Once the message got out that he had built it kind of like a um, tribute to God, then a lot more people began to go to it. It was like they're uh, almost like a worship-type place. While he's out there doing his work for the Lord, I am ranting and raving and fussing at anyone that will listen to me and my family and my friends. You know, oh, he's manic. He needs professional help. He's bipolar. He's this, he's that. But it wasn't like that. It was just like I had to build the world's largest treehouse. You know, I had to. I was so resentful. I never have called it a treehouse. I call it the tree. And it was mystery, and my husband was having an affair with a tree. I suppose about the fifth year that I was working on it, that I started noticing that um, in my vision, I saw the whole property covered up with people. He would ask me if I would come and sing and do that kind of thing. And so I started going out there on Sundays. and. I watched the hardest people walk up and the child come back down and just the joy on their faces. And I just realized that maybe there was a place for me out there. And um, we walked out on these boards and I looked down and I thought, I'm seven stories up and I'm looking through boards that are not nailed down and I'm not afraid. That's when I knew that something had changed in me. I looked at him and I said, Horace, it's your vision. You see it, I can't. Show me. And when I did that, I stepped back. It was like the momentum and the progression got faster and faster. It was drawing a lot of people here to Crossville. And um, and I'm not talking about just from around in Tennessee, all over the all over the country. A busy day at the treehouse was uh, about 3,700 people. There probably never were a day that the treehouse didn't cost me something for having it, you know, because I never ever charged a cover charge or anything like that. It took me 11 years to get the roof on it. He put the top on the treehouse, the bell tower, on uh, September 11th of 2002. 
you're 86 feet to right here. It's 97 feet to the top of it. Chimes are up in here. They're uh, oxygen acetylene bottles. Ring them for you. I was here one day and, and seven fire marshals, they came and they said, we uh, got a complaint about your treehouse, but we come to check you out. A week later, I got a certified letter. It was like, close the treehouse immediately. It's a safety hazard. Close it to the public now, you know. So I came that day and, and told everybody to enjoy it because this is the last time you get to see it, you know, up close. My name is Natasha Garson. I'm from Crossville, Tennessee. Randomly on Facebook, the social media, I had learned that had closed. And so everyone was like, oh, can you help with this? I started a petition on change.org. The petition got thousands of signatures and the response from people all over the world was just overwhelming. They volunteered their time, people volunteered money, materials, because he had touched so many lives. I have a real, real uh, issue with the fact that they did close it without even confronting me with any of it or, or giving me a chance to correct any of it pay taxes on the farm and and own it you know and they're they're trying to tell me that I can't do what I want to with it he was devastated when they closed it down you know it was his love and it was his life's work I might have to uh, charge you a, a cover charge just to cover the insurance and having people on duty all the time you know won't be the come anytime you want to and that kind of thing. It'll all be monitored and have to sign a waiver. It won't be the same. But it's actually kindling the flame that me and my wife had, you know, when we first got married. We're, we're getting to spend time together. I guess as the treehouse has been closed, we've probably put about seven or 8,000 miles on, on a vehicle traveling the country. And we get up every morning, and he plays the piano, and I sing. We will be united when, not if, when it opens back up. Kylie, wanting to hear that voice I heard when I built it, instructed me on what he wants for it, how he wants me to go about it. I haven't got that answer yet. The Treehouse was produced by Karen Duffin for KCRW's Unfictional with supervising producer Nick White. Like Clyde Casey in Los Angeles and Horace Burgess of Crossville, Tennessee, Adolph Sutro of San Francisco was also a visionary who dreamed big perhaps a little too big or too expansive, since his grand structure attracted fewer people in its heyday than it does now that it's in ruins. Here's Roman Mars to explain. If you've wandered at Machu Picchu or Stonehenge or the Colosseum or even snuck into that abandoned house on the edge of town, you know the power in a piece of decrepit architecture. 
even if you haven't been to these places. They've been photographed and filmed for you. Abandoned Soviet bus stops, deserted old movie theaters, decaying residential streets. They're fascinating in this like planet of the apes kind of way. So of course, there's a German word for it. Ruinenlust, the long-standing aesthetic obsession with decay. Resident Germanophile and producer Avery Truffleman. It might actually be one of those made-up German words. It probably is. But the concept itself is totally a real thing. Ruins inspire wonder. They give the mind this task of reconciling what's there and what's not, what once was and what now is. People flock to remainders of ancient civilizations, Romans, the Mayans, the Egyptians. But people also flock to things that just look like they're ancient too. That combination of decomposition and romance makes a perfect cocktail of repulsion and allure. And for San Franciscans, this place is Sutro Baths. My friend Austin brought me there one night. So how do you get in? Does the trail just lead right to it? Yeah, yeah, there's steps. There's a parking lot up there and steps that go down. Head to the rocks at Land's End on the very northwest corner of San Francisco. Walk down the flight of stairs into a grassy slope that hugs the sea. Off to the right is the gaping maw of a cave. To your left is the crumbled foundation of a concrete structure. It looks like a giant Belgian waffle, about seven feet tall and 50 feet wide on the longest side. Beside the waffle are two pools of still water with a concrete jetty between them that dares you to walk its length. Make it to the end and you're at a seawall where the Pacific Ocean crashes into the rocks. There's no fence, no guards, only a warning sign that says, Danger. Cliff and surf area extremely dangerous. People have been swept from the rocks and drowned. What you can see down here are the ruins of the bathhouses. Have you heard any rumors as to what was what here? Strangely, no. I mean, other than it's a bathhouse in San Francisco. With all that uh, might indicate. Well, not the kind of San Francisco bathhouse he's thinking of if he's thinking of what I think he's thinking of. But we'll get back to that in a minute. And last time you were here, it was just like, was, were people wondering about the history of it at all? No, it was like 300 punks in a cave. <laughs> Austin had seen a band playing in the cave. They plugged their amps into a generator that they brought themselves. He told me things like that were happening at Sutra Baths all the time. And it's easy to see why. This place has a draw. The night that I was there, a group of photographers was snapping shots of the moon. Is this like a known photo destination? Um, I would say in the last three years it's been more common, so I think people are finding out about it. I just know that in the, like, the 30s it was some sort of bath for people to sit in and, and just soak. I don't know if it was hot or cold or what it was about. Ruins have drawn people to them for centuries. Starting in the late 1600s, a tradition emerged among European men of means to go visit sites of antiquity, Paris, Venice, Rome, and learn about the roots of Western civilization. Today, lots of people visit what's structure. And it was the pet project of Adolf Sutro. The name Sutro might sound familiar to you, especially if you live in San Francisco. There's Sutro Tower, Sutro Heights, there's a Sutro Library at the San Francisco State University, all named after this one German immigrant. He struck it rich by engineering a mining tunnel during the Nevada Silver Strike in the 1860s, and he turned his money into San Francisco real estate. A lot of real estate. Some historians estimate that at one point Adolf Sutro owned one-twelfth of the city. 
Adolf Sutro was to San Francisco what John D. Rockefeller was to New York and what Henry Huntington was to L.A. Sutro built public gardens, presented free concerts, and built the structure that would eventually become Sutro Baths. Sutro's original idea was that he wanted to build a giant outdoor aquarium that would be filled by the tides and it would empty at low tide. So in 1884, he created a catch basin that refilled naturally as the waves broke in. And then Sutro kept making more and more plans, adding on and on to his aquarium. He built the network of swimming pools, connecting canals. He even built a powerhouse as a freestanding building to heat the water. Then, when all that was done, then he hires an architectural firm. Assembly would be like if some crazy uh, self-improvement guy built the foundation for an elaborate house but didn't know what the house was going to look like. He just built a foundation, and he plumbed it. And then you hire an architect to come in and make a building fit on top of what was already there. That's how the baths were designed. From the outside, Sutro Baths looked like an ornate, palatial greenhouse. Underneath its majestic three-tiered glass canopy were several different swimming pools hot water and cold, salt water and fresh, and there were more than 500 individual changing rooms beneath the sweeping arena-style bleachers. And attached to the baths was a museum full of Sutro's crazy collection of stuff from around the world. Miniature boats, model buildings, taxidermied animals, gems, mechanical figures, a real Egyptian mummy, all inside of a glass palace facing the ocean at the edge of San Francisco. Up the hill, towards the road, was a street called Merry Way. There was a Firth wheel. Basically, a Ferris wheel. Along with a roller coaster and a hall of mirrors and games of chance. And keep in mind, Sutro was building at the edge of nowhere, on the rocks by the sea. And public transit didn't go there. And this was a challenge for both construction workers and for customers. It lost money from the day it opened. Sutro Land Company, they're trying to sell land. So he's doing things for the public at the same time trying to make some money. But Sutro Baths just never, ever made money. By the time Adolf Sutro was elected mayor in 1894, his beloved baths were still not turning a profit. When he died four years later in 1898, his family started looking to get rid of the property. The Sutro family tried for years to sell Sutro Baths, while also trying valiantly to make it turn a profit. In 1934, my father was uh, hired by Adolf Sutro, who is the grandson of the pioneer Adolf Sutro. Just about that time, Adolf Sutro wanted to do something to get more people out here. If you go to Sutro Baths, you may run into Tom Bratton. My name is Tom Bratton, and now I volunteer for the National Parks and uh, come out here once a week and for a few hours and uh, talk to people and let them know just exactly what all these ruins were about. Tom's father was an engineer. And he helped Sutro Baths undergo its really wiggy midlife crisis. They cut off the bottom pool, cut that off from the regular pool, drained it, scatter sand around on it, put in some tables, ping pong tables and picnic tables, and they called that the Tropic Beach. The Tropic Beach was supposed to be a warm, sandy place indoors just to hang out even though the real beach was right outside. That really didn't work out too well. Which really is a shame, because right outside, the beach is freezing and usually foggy. A tropical version isn't that crazy. And so they said, well, how about this? We'll take that tropic beach away, and we'll put a platform there, and we'll make that into an ice rink. And when Tom was in high school, his father got him a job working at this very ice rink. 
Yes, Tom worked at this place while it was still standing, which seems impossible given how ancient the ruins look. People will really come up to me and say, were these really ruins from Rome? <laughs> and I say, not really. <laughs> not at all. Tom's just being nice. By the time Tom was employed there, the name of the place had changed from Sutro Baths to just Sutros. The Sutro family had finally gotten rid of this place in 1952 when entertainment tycoon George Whitney bought it. Whitney was the boss when Tom Bratton started as a locker attendant. And even more than the Sutro family, George Whitney was really trying to do everything he could to get people to come out. So he tacked on more amusements, including a ride high above the sea that shuttled between the two cliffs on either side of Sutro's. He called it the Sky Tram. The Sky Tram. This thing would hold about 20 people. It took about 20 minutes to get across. <laughs> so they didn't let me make a lot of money on it. Whitney also thought an aviary might bring in the big money. So he ordered some exotic birds and some cages. What happened was all the birds came in at once before the cages. So they had uh, Whitney called all the employees and says, okay, everybody here, <laughs> take, it home, take home a bird. <laughs> until our cages come in and then we'll bring the birds back. What a mess. But even after the ice rink and the aviary and the sky tram, people still weren't coming to Sutro's. The Whitney's, after struggling for uh, 14 years, decided we're going to sell the property. Historian John Martini, again. It was sold to a land developer who began to demolish it. And uh, in June 66, that's when the very convenient fire broke out. In 1966, a mysterious fire broke out and reduced Sutro's to a pile of rubble. An arsonist was suspected, but no one was arrested. And then Sutro's was just never rebuilt. Eventually, the last owner uh, sold the land to the National Park Service in 1980. So it's part of a big national park area. Sutro Baths is right inside Golden Gate National Recreation Area. And when the government finally bought it, it was seamlessly included into this big national park area. It's not a national park itself, and it doesn't look like it belongs within the Golden Gate National Park's conservancy at all. It just looks like a bunch of ruins. Sometimes ruins are more evocative than if the, the site is restored, because there's more of a sense that this is the real deal. Even though these are only 45 years old, they have the same attraction, that urge to try to explain what, what people are looking at. So unlike other ruins, remains of Sutro Baths are less than 50 years old. They are part of a national park. Since 2012, they do have their own tiny museum and gift shop on site, right along Merry Way, where the Midway used to be. The street sign is still there. And yet, the ruins are still pretty dangerous, and to many people, still mysterious. So at this point, you may be wondering how to get out to the baths, or about parking availability, or maybe if you can go hold your photo shoot there. Jill can help. People write to me with... Can I have my wedding there? How can I get there? Can I film my movie there? I answer all their questions. Jill Corral runs SutroBaths.com. And I don't say like, oh, I'm just this random chick in Seattle. From Seattle. You know, I just respond to their question. Like, yes, is your wedding party smaller than 30 people? Sure, you can have it there. Jill snagged SutroBaths.com in 2000. I couldn't believe that the domain was available when it was. If you contact SutroBaths on Facebook or Twitter, those accounts are also run by Jill in Seattle. I love it when people ask me, like, how much does it cost? Can I get in? And it's just like, just go. It's never closed. And unlike Tom Bratton or John Martini, who actually both experienced Sutro Baths when it was a functioning building, 
Jill first encountered the place as a ruin. I was flown out to San Francisco for a job interview, 1997. My main mission was to touch the Pacific Ocean that day before my interview. I went down there and I stumbled on this just insane playground of concrete and metal sticking out of the ground. I didn't know what the hell it was. It was just pretty much the closest to a magical place I'd found as an adult. And uh, I, I fell in love. I think I will toss my ashes there after I die. Well, I won't. Someone else will. Jill actually did bury her two pet lizards there. They're in the cave. The story of Sutro Baths didn't exactly shape history. Yes, it helped expand San Francisco public transit. Yes, you can see the ruins briefly in a scene in the movie Harold and Maude. But ultimately, it was a strange glass complex at the edge of the ocean that was destined to fail. And amusements and attractions were constantly added and removed throughout its life. But in a city as rapidly gentrifying as San Francisco, in a country as young as the United States, these ruins are an anomaly. I respect people's desire for it to be like this mysterious, unknown thing. But when I hear tourists talking and just sitting there wondering, like I have been known to walk up to them and tell them like there used to be this giant, beautiful, magical thing here. Like you have to know about it. Always read the plaque, right? You got it. In addition to researching what the baths were, Jill keeps tabs on how they're changing. Ruins seem static, like a fixed ending. But of course they're not. I have watched it continue to fall apart. There used to be a deck that you could go and read on by the cave, and then it just crumbled into the sea uh, sometime around 2005. It's still living and dying in slow-mo which is a process the parks are actually trying to stop, according to Tom Bratton. As far as the national parks go, they, they want to make it so that it's not going to deteriorate any more than it already has. If it deteriorates any more, you're not going to really be able to tell what it really was. Tom speculates they might do this by adding more signs, maybe stabilizing some of the decaying structures, but not too much more. Well, what the parks really don't want to do, they don't want to make it look like a box to go inside and look at the ruins and then come out again. But recently, the young ruins have become something else entirely. Nature's reclaiming the site. The ruins continue to evolve. The old swimming pools themselves have become partly silted in. It's become a wetland. Migrating birds love the site. And recently, an otter appeared swimming in Sutro Baths. The public dubbed him Sutro Sam. Sutro Baths continues to be a machine for generating new San Francisco folklore. Today, Sutro Baths is pretty much back to where it started. All that remains is the foundation, including the original catch basin that Adolf Sutro built before ever imagining a swimming pool, a tropic beach, a carnival midway, an ice skating rink. So after all the years of building this palace of wonder after adding games and rides and oddities, trying and failing to draw the public out to this strange place by the ocean, All Adolf Sutro or George Whitney had to do was let it burn down and crumble into ruin. Young Ruins was produced by Avery Truffleman with Sam Greenspan, Katie Mingle, and Roman Mars for the podcast 99% Invisible. Like Clyde Casey... 
Horace Burgess and Adolf Sutro, there are people out there dreaming up grand, seemingly nutty plans and putting them into action. Who knows what will result? A trip to Mars? A geodesic dome that doubles as a mobile concert hall? A roller coaster as tall as the Burj Khalifa? That can't be too far off. Rational thinking be damned. Hallelujah. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear nearly 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. If you like what you heard today, leave us a review on iTunes, send us an email, or let us know through Facebook or Twitter. You can also support us with a donation at thirdcoastfestival.org. As always, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.